And being here today is just this beautiful reminder that the church is not a building. It's not a place where we gather. It is the people of God gathered wherever, whenever we come together to worship Him. Even at Woodhouse in the middle of winter. Um, there is a, a rumor that uh, Team Deborah is winning. So just well done, Team Deborah. Is that right? Must be. Jeremy and Josh? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, good. So we've been learning a few things over the course of this weekend. Uh, there's a, a lot that's, that's happened. We've been learning some amazing cooks and what they're capable of producing in the kitchen. Uh, we're learning about apple crumble. We're learning that if Tony invites you to his French restaurant, <laughs> say no, don't go and don't order the, the, the apple crumble or the banana splits or whatever it was. Uh, but we've had a lot of fun. We've seen some K-pop dancers. Who knew that we had? The Wu family, you guys were amazing. There were a lot of other people dancing and, and doing all sorts. Uh, the Harrisons, I mean, that was amazing. We, we had sword fighting and all that. So that's what you missed if you weren't here. Uh, but get an update on that. So we have been going through the letter to the Philippians this weekend. And it is a letter. I, and I wonder if you've ever thought, why did, why did God choose letters to communicate his truth to us? Why not, why not lectures? Why not textbooks? Why not systematically go through everything that he wanted us to know? Why did he choose letters? Letters are very personal. They're very practical. They give advice. And they're also emotional, right? They express who, what you're feeling and stuff. Basically, Letters are much better than textbooks or lectures. Um, and, but there is a thing, you have to read a letter in a certain way. It's kind of one side of a situation. It's kind of like listening to a phone call today where you hear someone on the phone and you kind of have to work out what's going on on the other side of that phone call. So it's kind of like you hear, hello? Oh, congrats. Oh, wonderful news. Uh, it's arrived. That's great. That's great. And how much does it weigh? Wow, that's a big one. Um, and what color is it? And is it, is it petrol or diesel? <laughs> now, what were you guys thinking? <laughs> but you kind of have to put it together, right? There's a few little cues there that you have to put together. It's kind of like if you hear, have you got your results yet? Like, does that mean medical results? Or is that your exam results? So in Philippians, you do have to do a bit of detector work. And we do have to read between the lines. But it is this very warm and friendly letter that Paul is writing to this group of Christians that are in Philippi. And it was this, this relationship where Paul had brought them Jesus. He had proclaimed the good news to them. And they had then sent him aid and this person, Epaphroditus, to look after his needs. So they were in this giving and receiving relationship, right? Now, the Greek has a word to describe this. It is the word koinonia which we often translate the word fellowship, right? Now, fellowship kind of doesn't really portray the depth of the meaning of this word, right? It's, it's more used of a relationship between Siamese twins, right? Conjoined twins, so that they have the same bloodstream. If one is sick, the other is sick. If one died, the other died. What happens to the one happens to the other, it is this close, close bond that they have with one another. And it was used of the Greek business world as well, right? So if you wanted to, to have a good partnership, 
a business partnership and it was going well, they said you had koinonia. Uh, so in, in Chinese, there's a word that could describe this for those Chinese speakers, but it's called guanqi, right? Like this close relationship, this business relationship that you have. Um, now, the truth is that if you had a business relationship that had good koinonia, it meant that if one part of the partnership was doing well, the other part of the partnership was doing well. If one collapsed, the other collapsed. If one wasn't doing their job, you felt it. Now, with fellowship, I don't know about you, but when you hear the word fellowship, you kind of link it to leisure time. Often in Christian circles, we'll say, come along for some fun and fellowship. Right? So it's kind of like this is what we do on the weekends. We kind of hang out together. But that's not what it means. This call for koinonia, for partnership, is so much deeper. We are partners in the gospel. Right? It, it, we are in the business of spreading life to people so that people like Ali come to know the person of Jesus Christ. It is a lifestyle. It is a way of life. Not just on a Sunday, not just when we get together and hang out. You know, the early church was called The Way. I think that is a great name for a church. We're the church on the way. We're following The Way. It is a great example of what the church should be. Now, so far, over the course of the weekend, we've looked at battles that the church needs to face. And in chapter 1, we looked at the battle of suffering. And then in chapter 2, Pastor Vincent took us through the battle of unity and yesterday morning, we looked at the battle for perseverance to keep going. And this morning, we're looking at now the battle for partnership. And I want to do it through this business angle, this idea of a partnership. If a partnership is to work well, if a church is to work well, then it is to have koinonia. It is to be in a good partnership. So these are some four things to draw out of being a good partnership and a partnership working well. Number one, a successful partnership, there will be a concern for one another, right? There is a genuine interest in each other's lives. There is this affection for one another. You actually like one another. Um, you know, that's, that is a beautiful thing of this weekend, just kind of getting to know people and enjoying each other's company and appreciating something. But that is a successful ingredient for a partnership, to know one another. And Paul, he has these feelings and these emotions for these Philippians, right? He longs for them. He has this affection for them. He says in verse 1, Whom I love and long for my joy and my crown. And because he feels this way about them, he is led to pray for them. And that should always be our angle as well, right? When we think about people, we are led to pray for them. And Paul's prayers actually are quite simple. They are thank you prayers or please prayers. So he begins by thanking God for them. And we should do that, right? Thank God for one another, the people that God has put in your life. Now, he says, when I think of you, Philippians, it is the most beautiful memories and it causes me just to thank God for you. Now, when we remember that actually when Paul was in Philippi, horrible things happened to him, right? He had a demon-possessed slave girl following him around. He was thrown in prison unjustly. But he says, you know what? When I think back to that time, I think of you guys, and that causes me to be full of thanksgiving. And then he comes to his please prayer. He asks God for something. God, please do this. And Paul doesn't pray for comfort for them. 
He doesn't pray that their problems would be gone. But if we go back to chapter 1, verse 9, this is his prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Prayer. Guys, I want you to love each other more and more. I want you to get to know Jesus and I want you to love him more. That is my prayer for you, that you would love one another. And that in this love, you would also have a discernment, but not just discernment to what is good and what is better. No, I want you to know God and know his will so that you would be able to discern what is best. God wants us not to settle for the average or the good. He wants you to know the best that he has for you. He wants you to use discernment to know what is the best use of your time. What is the best use of your gift? So there's concern for one another that, that Paul has and he expresses, right? He says, you Philippians, you are so good to me. You sent me aid. You sent me Epaphroditus. And I have this concern for you. I want you to love each other more and more. And it's kind of over the course of this weekend, there's been a little microscope on, on us as a church. And I felt like just looking around us that we've started to love each other more. We started to love him more. We're being the church together, and that is a beautiful thing. And we're not just a church that's concerned with our little thing, what's happening here in Adelaide. We've become concerned over the course of this year. We're concerned what's happening with the Trulines in Papua New Guinea. We're concerned with what's happening with the Fjordings in Thailand, with Anne in Southeast Asia. All these people that we're, we care and we love and we're concerned about. So a good partnership will have a genuine concern for one another. Another thing that a good partnership will have is that it deals with concerns and problems. Uh, a, good, a good partnership addresses those things that are friction within the church. And it always points us towards a solution, right? So what is the solution for us? Or who is the solution for us? Jesus, right, the Sunday school answer. But it's true. You look at Paul in this letter. All the time, he's pointing them back to Jesus, who Jesus is. Uh, you know, in, in, this, in this little letter you read, right in the beginning of, of chapter 4, there are these two ladies in the church that are obviously in disagreement. And he says, no, I, I want you to sort it out. I want you to deal with that problem because I want you to have koinonia. I want you to be about the gospel, so let's deal with it. But Paul also gives them this advice. He says, I want you to think about the future. How you think about the future will cause you to dress some of the stuff that's in the present. And he says, rejoice and pray. This is what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God and the God of peace. The God of peace and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, how we deal with things here in the present is linked to how we think about the future. That is to have good partnership, right? And what Paul is saying here is, guys, I want you to remember that Jesus is coming back. The Lord is at hand. 
He will deal with everything. He will put everything right. Every bit of brokenness, every bit of injustice, every bit of hurt, He will deal with it. He will put an end to it. That's the hope that we have. Every time we hear about a bit of brokenness and destruction, the thing that should fill us with hope is that Jesus is coming back to put it right. You guys are allowed to get excited about that and say hallelujah. It is a good thing. And I encourage you guys, when you get stressed and worked up, Take that moment, stop and remind yourself, no, he is coming back. He is coming. The world will not always be like this. He is coming back to put things right. It's not going to be this way forever. And then he addresses this thing of what robs us of joy. What is the thing that sucks joy out of your life? It's worry, right? I loved it when I first came to Australia. And when you ask someone how they are, they reply, no worries. Yeah. I, I love that, right? Because I think it's very biblical. We should have no worries. Right? I remember years ago, there was a church sign. You know, like some churches have signs outside. Uh, and this one went, why pray when you can worry? And, and I love that. It's got a little bit of humor there, but it really hits on a truth. Why pray? When you can worry. Now, Paul would look at that and he would just freak out. He would say, that's, that's totally wrong, guys. Why worry when you can pray to the God of peace? Why worry when you can pray to the God of peace? Now, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he addressed a whole lot of sins. Do you know what sin he spent the most time on? It was the sin of worry. The sin of worry. Now, that is why, that is why you never see a Christian worried. <laughs> now, we laugh at that, right? But I'm going to hold you to that because we really shouldn't. We really shouldn't. Because Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you're actually, it's a, it's a liable against your heavenly father when we worry. Because you're saying... God cares more about his garden and his pets because they don't need to worry where the next thing comes from. But I'm his child. I need to worry. I need to worry. Jesus said, I'm going to provide all your needs. I will provide all your needs. The only thing you need to do is just seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. Like when, you, when that comes into your mind, when you feel that joy being sucked out of you, what he calls us to do is, no, just pass that one on to the Father. Just pass that one on to him. Lord, I just give this to you now. That's what he calls us to do. He says, with thanksgiving, make your requests known. Make them known. Tell him. And just so we know, this doesn't mean that you'll get everything that you want. <laughs> we all know this, right, if you walk through. But he will give you exactly what you need. He will give you. He's promised to do that. See, this world is craving peace. It's craving peace. Everywhere you look, we, we, we just want peace. We just want peace. And we've got the answer. We've got the answer, right? It says, how do we get it? How do we get that peace of mind? Well, Paul tells us, well, it's, it's what you think about. It's what you think about with your mind. It's amazing how this little word mind comes up the number of times it does in the book of Philippians. It talks about this battle for our mind. And he basically says, fill your mind with good things. Fill your mind with the things that God has done. 
This is what he says in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Put your mind on those things. Now, the only way I can really illustrate this is to do the opposite. If you spent your time thinking about everything that is false, everything that is degrading, everything that is wicked, everything that is dirty, what do you think will happen? Do you think peace will flood your mind? No, you'd be filled with worry and panic and shame. God says, no, no, I want you to have the peace of mind. I want you to have the peace of God. Focus on those things. You see, he promises us not just, not just the peace of God, but he says the God of peace will be in you. The God of peace will be in you. So God does look into a person's mind. Proverbs tells us, says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So when I read that, the question I think about, what do I think most about? What occupies my thoughts? What am I spending my time dwelling on? Paul will say, think about what is noble and good and trustworthy and excellent. Now, we live in a culture, every time we read a bit of news, it doesn't sound that good, right? And to be honest, the media has a vested interest in you clicking on their news articles. And the thing that tends to get the most clicks is the bad news. It's those things that are degrading and detestable. You kind of have to search really hard for the good stuff. But we have it in a book. We have it in the person of, called Jesus. That's a good place to be. Um, I, I once went, I'm not an arty person. I'm definitely not the singing pastor. Uh, that's, that's reserved for someone else. But I remember years ago seeing a piece of art, and it really struck me. Now, art doesn't usually do that to me. Uh, once my wife took me on a romantic date through the Louvre in Paris, and I just wanted to go and get a cup of coffee and a crepe. Like, that was it, right? It just, like, it's a picture. <laughs> like, but there was this one piece of art that really blew my mind. And uh, I hadn't been a Christian for long, and I remember walking and stopping and just looking at this. And it, someone had taken all the news articles, the headlines out of newspaper, cut them out and sort of shred them out and pasted them on this canvas. And then they had taken a cross and they had nailed it over these headlines. And then they had the blood coming down, just dripping over these headlines. It was so powerful to me. You know, you could read about all this dirty and degrading and horrible stuff that we do. And yet the cross and the blood of Jesus just wiping it away. So good partnership a good partnership is genuine concern for one another. A good partnership will deal with the concerns and the issues. But third, a good partnership shares resources. It shares resources. It's kind of in, in a business, if you've got one part of the businesses that are not doing so well, you will move your resources there so you can keep going. Uh, as a youngster, I took a gap year and I went to Israel and I worked on what they call a kibbutz. Has anyone heard of a kibbutz? So it's kind of like this communal farm that was set up in the founding of Israel because uh, they were kind of at war with the people around them and they were poor. They needed to, to kind of get food production going. So they all got together as a community 
And then they would farm the land around them. And then, you know, everyone was working together. Everyone was working hard. They shared the resources. But what was even more amazing was that other kibbutzim, if they didn't do so well, if their crops failed or they weren't going so well, other kibbutzes would look after them. They would share their resources. They would go like, no, you're in need. We will give you our profit. We'll share with you. And this built up the nation of Israel like nothing else because there was this koinonia. There was this partnership. And sadly, it's not in effect today because eventually people kind of got like, well, we're making more money with you. We don't really want to share our resources anymore. But that is this beautiful picture of what it means to share your resources. Now, this little thing of money comes up in the book of Philippians, right? The Philippians had sent money to Paul. He was in prison. No one kind of looked after you in prison in those days. You kind of had to find your own means of support. They knew about this, and they sent Epaphroditus with this gift of money to look after it. And Paul says, you know what, guys, thank you for the gift. I didn't need it. I didn't expect it. Because, because I need to tell you something. I've actually learned a secret. I've learned to be content. Whether I'm rich or poor, I've learned to be content. And when you realize that it's Paul who's saying this, that is amazing. Because in Romans 7, he talks about his righteousness. He said, you know, if you look at the law, I was a Pharisee. I was blameless. But there was one law that tripped me up. And it was this one of coveting coveting, being greedy, wanting more. And Paul, that same Paul, who was this greedy person and confessed, listen, everything else I could do, but oh, this thing got me. He now saying, I'm content. I'm content. And you can't be a greedy person and content at the same time. They don't go together. So the question we ask ourselves is, are we content? And if we're not content, we're probably, there's probably something in our minds going, what are we wanting? What are we wanting that's keeping us from being content? You know, Jesus, Jesus came and he said, listen, you can't serve. You cannot. It is impossible to have two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve them both. You can't. And the Pharisees, they heard that and they like, they hated Jesus because that's exactly what they wanted. They were super religious, right? On the outside, wore all the right things, said the right things. But they also wanted a lot of money. They wanted to be rich. They were quite happy to take it from the people and get rich. You know, our, and Paul, before he met Jesus, he was like that. He was a person who was quite happy for greed and wanting things. You know, we, we live on a culture that's almost based on this human emotion. This human desire of greed, of wanting stuff. Advertising really appeals to this kind of stuff. I once knew a guy in the advertising industry, and he said, well, you know, in advertising, our goal is to rob you of your contentment and sell it back to you in the form of a product. So, like that's when we get together, we study advertising. That's our goal, is to rob you of your contentment and sell it back to you in the form of a product. There was a great Dennis the Menace cartoon, that great theologian, Dennis the Menace. But Dennis the Menace, he goes into this toy shop and he's looking around. And he comes out and he says to his dad, wow, so many things I didn't even know I wanted. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, we kind of laugh at Dennis the Menace. But that's true of me. 
I can remember going into the Apple store for the first time in Hong Kong. And I was Dennis the Menace. Because I walked out going, wow, so many things I didn't know I wanted. And you know, before I walked into to the Apple store, and that's not about fruit and vegetables, right? For some of you, that's like computer stuff. But uh, I'm, before I walked in, I had my phone. And I was perfectly content with my phone. No problems at all. I liked it. It did everything I need. But you know what? I walked out that Apple store. Something wrong with my phone. <laughs> Sounds terrible. I went home. I said to Irina, I need a new phone. No, I, I need a new phone. Uh, there was this contentment that had just been robbed. And there was something else offering me another product. You know, I, I do this with my kids. When we watch advertising now, I, I irritate them. But often if there's, a, if there's an ad on TV, I'll stop and I'll go, what are, what are they talking about? What are they trying to do? And my kids almost now have the program to answer. Like, they're telling you, if you get this, you'll be popular. And I said, is that true? They go, no, it's not true. But they're these little teachable moments because advertising works. It sucks us into thinking we need more. I went, no, that's not true. Let me think about what is true and right. You know, Paul is now content. He's content whether he's rich or poor. And while I was preparing, I thought of this question. I wonder which is harder. Do you think it's, it's harder to be content when you're rich or harder to be content when you're poor? I wonder if you ever thought about that. Uh, for me, I think maybe it's, it's actually harder to be content when you're rich. Paul says, you know what, I'm, I'm thankful when this gift comes. I'm so thankful you, for you Philippians. But I want you to know I'm content. And here's why I'm content. And he comes up with this beautiful verse that gets butchered. Absolutely butchered. It's this verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now the reason this verse gets butchered is because we haul it out of context and we apply it to anything and everything. The Fijian rugby team had Philippians 4 verse 13 on their rugby jerseys. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can play rugby through him who strengthens me. And I know plenty of good rugby players who don't know Jesus and they play rugby pretty well. So what is it? What is it when Paul says, I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me? The context is actually money. The context is actually learning to live on your means, on what you've been given. So really what Paul could say is like, I've learned to live on whatever income I have through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. You see, because, because Christ brings contentment. Christ, Christ brings contentment. And I just wonder... When we live in a world that is so bent on, on, on getting more and having more stuff, the church is actually called to be salt and light and to show people, no, actually, we are content. Actually, more than content, we're generous. And I want to city reach Oakton. Can we be such a church? Can we be such a church where we have this... Actually, our minds are set on Him. We're thinking about good things. We're thinking about things that are praiseworthy and excellent and in our hearts, the God of peace. And it's just a contentment that we have. Paul says this of the gift. You know what? Thank you for the gift. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't really need it because I am content. But what I am really thrilled about is that it will benefit you having given the gift. Now, here comes this crazy thing about God's accounting. And real accountants can't get their heads around this. But with God... 
We keep what we give away. We keep what we give away. Paul says, actually, by you giving this gift to me, it is to your credit. Now, an accountant would know when you give something away, that's to your debit. But Paul says this in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, to your credit. It's this weird thing, right? Like it's a bank account. Usually when you give something away, you debit. But actually in God's economy, when we give something away, we don't debit. We get credited in his eyes. And I wonder, whose economics are we more concerned about? Do we think about a heavenly economics? Or do we think about God's economics? Because Paul says, you know, giving, it's like a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. It is a good thing. I think often we think we're finished with sacrifice. But actually, the New Testament is full of sacrifice. We are called to bring a sacrifice of praise. When we give, it's the sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. You know, I heard this lovely story of when in a church uh, offering has been possible. This is obviously pre-COVID days, right? When you used to pass around the offering. And it got to one gentleman and he had nothing to put in the offering. So what he did is he took out a little piece of paper and he wrote myself, folded it in and put it in the offering. That's what he had to give. Myself. What a beautiful gift. We all do that. So let's be living sacrifices to God. Give ourselves to him. The fourth and last ingredient for a good partnership for Kononia to work is greetings. Greetings. In verse 21, it says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Not just the ones you like. There's a great little, I love this one. I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to, right? There's this great little poem that goes, to dwell above with saints I love, that would be glory. To dwell below with saints I know. That's a different story. (laughs) But it shouldn't be that way, right? It shouldn't be that way because we're called to love one another. So it's not just the ones that you like. It's not just the ones that you get on well with. It's not just the ones who will benefit you. It's every saint. If you've got a Bible and you don't mind underlining in it, underline that word. Every saint. Every saint. You know, Francis Chan, he's a pastor in America, He did this experiment one day where as people were arriving at church, he stood outside and he was greeting people as they were coming in. And he brought this young person along with him. Right Now, Pastor Chan has become very well known. He wrote the book Crazy Love. Uh, Very well known. Right, So his church is quite a big church. And he brought this young person and he said, "Stand, stand next to me. And as the people came in, he waited them to greet them. And everybody greeted Francis Chan. And maybe once in a while you would have one or two people who would greet the young person standing next to him. But everyone made sure they greeted Francis Chan. And what he did, this is very sneaky, but in the same service he had it filmed. And he, that's terrible, right? But he showed it back. And he, and he was telling his people, look, right? We say one thing with our lips, but we actually do it another. In our hearts, we have this favoritism. That's, that's, that's not who we are as a church. That's not koinonia. We're concerned with everyone. You see, when we, when we say hello to someone, when we greet someone and we ask how they're doing, we're recognizing them as people. They're not just a resource. They're people, image bearers, made in the image of God. Paul would even say, greet one another with a holy kiss. 
Now, what's the difference between a kiss and a holy kiss? 30 seconds. <laughs> now, now you guys know. All right. But honestly, guys, to greet one another is an important part of the gospel. It's an important part of the gospel because it's about relationship. Jesus greeted us. He greeted us. He came to us and greeted us. It's amazing. Like in, in all these letters, it begins with greetings. It ends with greeting. And sometimes you think, what a waste of space, God. Can't you just, like this is the Bible. Can't you use those greetings for something else? No, because he's showing us what it means to have a relationship with people. They're an important part of the gospel because we care for one another. We have genuine concern. We deal with the difficult issues in love. We share our resources. We point each other towards Jesus. So we've kind of rushed through Philippians. And we've come to the end of it. We've looked at these four battles. But this is not four battles that the church out there faces. They're, they're actually four battles that we face. That we face at Oakton. And the truth is we will need to continue to fight for them. There will never be a time where we get and we say, we've got it all down packed. No, we need to constantly strive towards unity. We need to constantly face the suffering that will come into our lives. We need to constantly persevere in the things of God. And we need to constantly remind ourselves to be in partnership with one another. To be in partnership with one another. You see, we want to be effective for the gospel. That's why we gather. We don't gather to be comfortable. We have all eternity to be comfortable. We gather to serve him. And guys, we are called. At this time, in this generation, God has been so beautiful. That verse, that Ali rent, right? The plans he has for us. We have a part to play in his amazing plan. Isn't that amazing? We're not the main actors, but we get to play this beautiful part in the story that he's weaving throughout our time. In this time, in this generation. Guys, we have one life. That's all we get. You don't, you don't get a second bite at the cherry. And we don't want to just survive. We don't want to get to it and say, phew, we made it. No, God's got more for us. We want all that the Lord has for us to be. But you know, in all these battles, there is something that will stop us from winning. If you look at the battle for suffering, the thing that stops us from winning that battle is self-pity and self-preservation. When we look at unity, the thing that will stop us from winning that battle is self-importance and self-interest. When we look at the battle for perseverance, the thing that'll stop us from winning that battle is self-righteousness and self-indulgence. And if we look at the battle for partnership, the thing that'll stop us from winning that battle is self-protection. Have you noticed there's a word there that keeps coming up? The word self. That's the enemy. That's the enemy of self. And you look at Jesus when he taught, hey, guys, I'm going to teach you to pray. What does he say? He doesn't say, my Father in heaven. He says, our Father in heaven. Give us, us. You know, Jesus, Pastor Vincent's mentioned this a lot this weekend. But when Jesus said, follow me, first thing he says, deny yourself. Put yourself on the cross. Put yourself on the cross and following him. And Jesus, on that cross, he took all our selfishness. He took all our shame and he died for it. He died for it so that we don't need to be selfish anymore. We have him. 
We have him. And we can rejoice in the Lord because he is enough. You see, Jesus didn't think of himself. <laughs> he didn't think of himself. He actually gave up everything he had and came. That's what this letter tells us. He came and he served us in such a beautiful way. And because we have his spirit living inside us, we're able to do the same. You can't do that in your own strength. But he will come and he will be in us and he'll cause us to do the same. And as Paul says, by your prayers and the power of the spirit of Jesus working in us, we will do that. So church, I just want to say again how grateful I am to all of you for making this time and the effort to come out and spend time together, to actually do koinonia, to have a concern for one another. I love it. I love seeing you guys all together and caring for one another. I've seen so much of it through our lifetime at our church, but also on this weekend. It is a beautiful thing. And thank you. And God willing, we're not going to waste this time. We're going to go forward and we're going to be the church that God wants us to be. A church that is known for the fact that we love one another. A church that's known that we love God. Let's pray.